Britflix podcast comes absolutely free. So can I ask a favour? I urge everyone to go over to my iTunes page, Stitcher page, SoundCloud page, or Spotify page, or whatever podcast medium you're using to listen, and please rate and review us. You can just rate us. They all have star meters, which can be clicked on in absolutely no time at all. Just click on it and you're done. And it'd be really helpful. Trust me. The higher the star meter, the more reviews we get, the more ratings we get, the more the Britflix.com podcast goes up the charts. Please, please, please. Come on, I'm begging you now. Everyone listening, go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud or Spotify pages, type Britflix.com podcast and rate us. And if you've got a little bit more time on your hands, why not review us as well? Just two or three words of praise will do the world of good. It's really simple and really quick. Now on with the show. Hello. Hey man, how are you? Sorry, I couldn't hear the call. It's okay, it's okay. No, it's usually it's usually something straightforward. It was that classic. It's usually I can't. Usually what happens is I get I turn on to try and contact someone, and I can't see the green door. So I'm like, well, they've not switched on yet, so I'll wait. And then when the green dot comes on, we we can start talking. But I'm like calling you, and I'm thinking it ain't happening. Sorry. Are you able to see me? I am. Yes. Hello. Hey man. We only have to do audio for recording, but it's nice, obviously, having never met to uh, see what you'll look like first. Yeah, man. Same here. Thanks for the thanks for the kind words on the film. By the way, I'm really glad it, uh, you liked it and it touched you. Very cool. Very much so. It's it's a rare occasion that you go to Fright Fest and have a cry uh, when you see a <laughs> film. You know, it's uh, it's not the usual. It's not the usual expectation. But no, it was a real. You genuinely made a uh, a film that, un- unless you're a complete and utter psychopath, you couldn't help but be touched by. You know, it's uh, we live in we live in fairly we live in fairly fragile times, and uh, to see a film go out there and go, why do we even think this is an issue? As in. Whatever people look like, I mean, not not that society is not insensitive. It's uh, it confronts it really in a really clever way, um, and yeah, I guess the gamut of emotions was uh, was my response to your movie. So congratulations! And I've read other reviews, and I think I'm not alone really. Uh, so you must nice. be quite proud. I, I am actually. It's funny, you know. You um, you probably heard this from filmmakers. You. Um... You know, you make a film and, and uh, you, you hope that it's going to hit the mainstream, that it's going to make your other projects easier. You know, the whole business of filmmaking is about funding and market. And mm. and um, so so there's always that kind of pressure that you put on yourself. And um, same for this, you know, and, um, and and then, you know, like you hope in your, your little boy's dream it's going to get picked up by the, the Guardian and the New York Times, you know, and it doesn't. But so then you're a little disappointed, but then it goes to to little festivals or horror festivals and you're surprised and then you get people's reactions, right? Whether they're critiques like you or or, or regular audience member or people that are officially different and it, it they tell you it touched them and then you feel really proud. So then like on the human level, you're like, wow, it's cool. you know. Mm. And so uh, so for me, because I produced it, I co-produced it, it's been a bit up and down, you know, like um, – it's been tough to actually sell it on the business side. I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> but the audience reactions, every time it screens and the feedback we get and the contacts I get on the web is super good and heartwarming and encouraging, actually. Mm. So uh, so I am proud of that. So that's super cool. Well, look, yeah. I, usually I would now go into some preamble and say, 
before we start and everything, but I feel like we've started. So yeah. <laughs> um, so let's carry on this conversation. Uh, sure. Do you want to keep my answer? I, I should keep my answers short. How, how does it work? Do you want me to no, no, no. It's it's a, it's a podcast, and so okay, it's, we're, we're, I'm recording audio. So for for, okay. for me, it's um, it's very much about about you talking and me not. You know, so don't feel that you could be talking for too long because essentially it's your experience of making the movie that we want to try and get on the podcast. Sure thing. Um, so th- from that point of view, then, I mean, it, the, the question that where I normally start with is, and given you co-produced and you directed it and uh, and I'm, I'm guessing wrote as well, yeah? Co-wrote, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, with so, Joel, my co-writer. So so with Joel, your co-writer, so where where was the... Where did the journey start? You know, what were you in a coffee shop talking about this? You read a headline in a newspaper. What was what for you was the the trigger that set the ball rolling for it to become Happy Face the movie? Oh man, uh, it, it's actually a personal story. It, it's autobiographical in a way because um, uh, this this the idea of the story started before I was into film because. Um, my mom used to be um, a beautician. She used to work in cosmetics. Okay. So she was she used to be very pretty, a French woman. She yeah. immigrated from France into Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, very well made up. Worked for Christian Dior, Lancôme. You know all these yeah, beauty yeah, yeah. products. Yeah. And um, she defined herself by her beautiful body, her beautiful face, everything like that. And when I was a kid, she contracted breast cancer when I was five. Mm. And so she had to get treatments, you know, lost her hair, lost her breast. Then she started working again. She was fine. And the cancer came back. So growing up with my single mom uh, and the cancer coming back, I saw what it did to her body because basically it changed her physical appearance. And her whole definition of herself based on her beauty kind of got shattered. And I was left with that or witnessing the reaction of a woman in the beauty industry, losing that beauty mm. and and really struggling with, with who she was and the, the gaze of men on her. And so it made me really kind of frustrated with society, that side of society, and also sensitive to, to that. And, and when I was a teenager, uh, you know, when you're a teenager, you're always ashamed of your parents. So uh, even when they're they're okay, and so you know I I wouldn't dare bring friends home because you know she she'd be bald after some treatments. So I was kind of like on the one hand I loved her and I wanted to care for her. On the other hand, I was ashamed of her and I wanted to 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 run away, and and that caused me a lot of guilt. That kind of push pull, right? Okay. You love somebody, but then mm. you you realize your reaction, your visceral reaction as a teen is you want to get away from this. And then you hate yourself for feeling that. So that's at the core of the film. It's that guilt. And um, she passed when I was like 23. Right. And um, I was in finance and everything like that. I was supposed to be a banker. And after she passed away, I kind of drifted into film because because there was no point in making money anymore. You know, I had this immigrant mentality, make money, you know, cater to your family and stuff like that. And because we were like, you know, not rich and in Canada, a foreign country. And um when I was in film school, I had this idea of these monsters, these disfig- and I used to play Dungeons and Dragons and read comic books and love horror. And so I had this idea of like putting these faces on the screen and just shocking people. And I think it was a kind of like raw, visceral reaction to that guilt, to the shame I felt by looking at her scars and her, her emaciated body. I think it was... um it was a way for me to come to terms with it, to deal with that kind of repulsion that I had with uh, 
scarred bodies and scarred faces. It's really, so it's, it's really. It started out as a short film, and when I was. I was going to say it's that it, it sounds. I mean, obviously, having watched the film, and anyone listening that has will 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 know how biographical. You, when you say biographical, you mean biographical. The subjects you've talked about already are very much present yeah, yeah, yeah. in in the story. There's not you've not hidden this anywhere, or you've not you've not done a metaphor of it. You've you've <laughs> you've, you've been up. You're being upfront about all these confused feelings of of positivity and negativity, and, and brought that into the the character of Stan. Um, yeah, but, but it was interesting. Yeah. It's, it's 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 purely coincidental. But I've I've just been listening to a pair of philosophers discussing Kafka's Metamorphosis. Okay, I don't know if you've I don't know if you've read that. The, that no, story. no, no, I haven't. Right, so it's the story of a man who wakes up one morning and he is a huge beetle. Oh, so the opening line of the story is, I woke I I, I, I woke up in my bed. And then I realised I was a huge insect. So that's how it, that's how the story starts, and it and it goes. And now, and, and when you re, when I first read it a long time ago, it was very much the story of the absurdity of that notion. But these two philosophers yeah. were discussing it, like having again not read it themselves for a long time, but looking at it with with fresh eyes. And they began yeah. to sort of see the the allegory in the story of what it's like to be a carer. For, for either aging parents or sick parents or sick children, this idea that we see the grotesque of, and, and that's a society thing, not just your personal view of, of the, of the right, person right. you're with. And I was like, and I never thought, I've never, because now I, now I can only see it that way now. It's this, this, um, this notion that we, we, it is, it is a societal problem. What you, what you, you describe it as being what you felt, but none of us are ready for it. None of us, no. It's a human, yeah. Sorry, it's it's a human thing. I think it's like it's it's a thing that when you're a kid, even when you're an adult, but more when you're a teenager, or a young adult, you're not prepared uh, to deal with you know death, decrepitude, uh, mm. uh, the body withering away, all that all that crazy stuff, all that stuff that we fear. Mm. We, we we only get prepared if we live through it or we see people dealing with it, and we kind of learn mm. as we get older and wiser. And it's still tough. And and yeah, you're right in the sense that. Everybody's got that kind of, I mean, I don't know if everybody does, but I certainly do that kind of fear and kind of like conflicting emotions of not being prepared for that. Yeah. But also the the mirror of what they said, what they, again, what they just used in this discussion of the metamorphosis was that the mirror is of the person's shame. So you're caring for someone that feels shame as to how they look and feel in themselves. So there's two things going on. There's, there's your inexperience and inability to deal with it. Then there's their projection of their own feelings about how they might feel. And if you say, like, your mother was, you know, her, your mother's life was built on the beauty industry, then suddenly not being able to be who she was. And it's like, please help me, Andre. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's a different, yeah. it's, it's a swapping of roles that, again, we're not ready for when we get older or when we get sick. You know, we're not ready for that. You know, as much as we're not ready to do the caring, we're also not ready to be the person that suddenly is needing the care. <laughs> oh yeah yeah you're absolutely right like coming to terms with what's happening to you when your body goes or you're sick takes years you know and, and some people have it faster than others depending on how they're built and what they've gone through mm. but yeah exactly you've got like two people uh dealing with something that's happening that they're not prepared to deal with and it clashes i suppose you know and mm. um and in the case of yeah what happens is that the person that needs the care is going to kind of revert to needing 
some kind of father mother figure love caring thing to to really um make them feel okay and the person caring is not prepared to do that i mean doesn't really know i mean you could do this if if it's your kid or your you know your child maybe as a parent mm. but not not the reverse yeah no so, it's a, there's always there is always i've 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 tried to tackle this myself before in 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 a feature script i wrote where we had the parent changing and the kid being left with responsibility and there is a reasonable expectation or it's not an unreasonable expectation that the kid will run a mile as in yeah. run away from what they don't know what to do about. Whereas if you flip it and you make it even more responsibility on the parent, the parent doesn't run anywhere. There's like this, no. this, this, this thing, this responsibility that's kind of in, I'm not saying every parent has this because obviously they're a bad parent, but in the, right. in, in the large, in the large scheme of things where parents tend to raise children, the protective fight or flight element of what I need to do for my child is something that gets stronger the more vulnerable a kid gets. It's not, it's, it's rarely, oh, God, you've gone too far now. I can't care for you anymore. <laughs> no, no, you're right. You're right. I mean, I think that's luckily evol evolutionary, mm. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so when you, 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 were doing, you were having this burgeoning career in finance and you turn your back on it and go into filmmaking as a way of, I guess, exploring you to start with, never mind becoming a filmmaker full stop. You're going to film school as a difference to filmmaking, sorry, as a difference to finance, aren't you? The film school becomes... So how did that experience of film school help you process the ability to tell a story like Happy Face, Happy Face then? Because yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good question. Uh... Well, because what happened was I was in the, as my mom was dying, uh, she was pestering me to go to do graduate school, right? Because right. she wanted me to do doctorate degrees and stuff. And so I enrolled in a communication studies course and I had a film aesthetics course in Concordia because I figured, oh, communication studies, that's close to business. But the only course I could take was a film aesthetics given by a Jesuit priest, a uh, <laughs> teacher called Marc Gervais who's passed away now, but who used to be on the economical jury in Cannes. He did a thesis on Godard. He was friends with Eastwood. Wow. He was like a big shot in the 60s and 70s. He gave the prize to Pasolini's Teorema in Cannes in 67, I think. Good the, Lord. the church prize. So, wow. So imagine that. My teacher was a Jesuit priest who gave a, a, a Christian prize to a, a, a gay communist filmmaker in the <laughs> 60s. So that was controversial. And, and he made us watch movies by Kurosawa, Fellini, Bergman. And I watched Alain René's Hiroshima Mon Amour, and it blew me away. It, 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 it made me escape the dreary reality of what I was going through, namely my mom dying. And I think that feeling of escaping into that world of art, like pure art, like massive art, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like not entertainment, not commerce, but like art. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah sure. um, if there's such a thing to judge it that way. Mm. Uh, I got hooked on that, and after my mom passed away, I went to work in the Persian Gulf in banking, and then I was like, it was the only thing where I felt like alive or different. So I went into film, not to be a director, not to, because I had a background in, in loving film. I, I loved opera, theater, literature, poetry, um, you know, kung fu movies, American movies. That was my background in film. It was really basic. And it was a way, it was a cathartic way. It was a way to express, to touch that kind of like, greatness or intensity it was actually intensity emotional visceral you know like intensity whether it be in physical violence mm. psychological violence humor i needed to 
to, to, to feel or touch that. It was a way to express myself, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, my first short films are all little fairy tales where there's a central female archetypal creature. And looking back, I'm like, oh, boy, they're all about my mom, you know? <laughs> like a jealous woman, uh, like a woman who's sick in the hospital, like a woman not listened to by your parents. Like, they're all, like, weird archetypal of these women. They're, like, four little fairy tales. And one is on poetry, opera, uh, uh, cello, and the other one is dance. That was my first foray into film. And so that's that's how I got into it. And in film school, that thing was germinating. And, and Joelle Bourjoli, my co-writer, was a friend of mine. She had gone through the same film school in Toronto a year before. And um, uh, we it was our thesis project. You know, I pitched it and I got turned down. It was called The War of the Senses back in the day. Okay. It's called The War of the Senses. And I got turned down and uh, I made another short film about my mom as well, Terminal Venus, it was called. And But the, the story stayed. And a year later, two years later, that was like in the early 2004, we're like, okay, we should do a feature with this. So it took a long time because I think as I grieved for that and as I grew or changed, the story evolved. And mm. so um, it was hard to write because it I didn't structure it properly at the beginning. So it was kind of a jumble thing where you, you do that beginner's error. You just start writing a screenplay. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I've been there. I've been there. Uh, oh, man. So it took me years to, to like fix it. You know, it's like a house get, that's built on the wrong foundation. Get stu- you, you, get stu- you get stuck at that page 50 where you go, I've got nowhere to go. Where do I go? Where do I go? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. It so was, so, from, a... so you and Joel then, what, what would you say is your... Um, your writing process, how do you two get yourself to a point where you've got a working screenplay to start to develop? What's your process of working together? Uh, it was very special because Joelle, when I was in communication studies with that Jesuit priest, Joelle was also there, and that's where I met her. Mm. And, and we were friends, very close friends. Back in the day, we dated for a short while, and that was like in the early 90s. Yeah. And so she was in my life when my mom was passing away. So she kind of knew me at that time. Got you. So later on, when we developed the story, we kind of structured it together. But because it was based on autobiographical events, I did most of the, the actual typing and the writing and the fleshing out scenes and would send it to her, and she would we would bounce it because she – couldn't get into my head exactly. And she knew, she, she, she was smart enough and she, she's a bit wiser than me to know that I had to tell this one way or another. So it was pointless of her trying to write something because then I would be changing it all the time and it wouldn't Got be it. right. So I think she was wide enough, wise enough to step back, let me get it on paper and then kind of guide me through her knowledge of myself, screenwriting and structure, which is mm. great and character so that we came to, you know, we came to, to, to a decent story and when something wouldn't work she would tell me and I'd be like I'd be super upset I'd be like okay so I keep working at it until she felt it would work mm. you know because I'm stubborn I wouldn't abandon the concept like the concept of Dungeons and Dragons she, at first she was like what's, what is this you know she's like she wasn't into this she felt it was extraneous to the story and I didn't want to let it go because for me Dungeons and Dragons and fantasy and myth was a way to escape the reality I was living. And it's part of all my films. Like my first feature, The Wild Hunt, is about LARPing, you know, medieval reenactors. And so I kept working at it until 
it was woven into the story and it fit the plot and she felt it was cool. So that that was our process in a way. Okay, well look, I've just realised because we've jumped straight into it that what I usually do in the in the opening bit is to get the uh, filmmaker to just give us a brief synopsis and it would feel like at this point it's maybe a good time to say. Do you want to give people a brief synopsis to what Happy Fest... Because we've been talking very generally about your process <laughs> and about ideas that have come to you to help you make it and, it'd be, and now it'd be quite quite interesting for the audience to now know so give us a brief synopsis to what happy face is and then we'll crack on with the conversation right. about i hope you're i hope you'll edit this <laughs> oh come on you must know what the you must know how to describe no, no, your no, film. No, the beginning the beginning no no right. all, no it's great it's great um, okay. you're you, you you can it's safe to say that you're the second guest out of over 400 where I've started and not stopped us. I've just carried on talking. So you're only the second person this <laughs> happened, so don't you worry. You flatter the director. That's well done. No, <laughs> just okay. So, all right, kids in the UK and English language speaking countries. My name is Alexandre Franqui. I'm the director of Happy Face, my second feature. So basically, Happy Face is a story of Stan, uh, a 19-year-old, an actually good-looking 19-year-old, who deforms his face with bandages and secretly attends a workshop for disfigured people in the hopes of becoming less shallow. And why does he do this? He does this because his mom is sick. His very beautiful mom is sick in the hospital and he's too ashamed to go see her. He's repulsed by her appearance and he's too ashamed to go see her in the hospital. And so he wants to kind of cure himself of his shallowness. And so he does this kind of misguided self-therapy by going to the disfigured workshop. But he gets discovered and busted, and complications ensues. Ensue. Indeed, they wow. do. Indeed, they do. Now, obviously, it is Stan's story because that's obviously the, the, the central inspiration for you. But also, with the with the disfigurement uh, group, the, the people at the group, there is a um, there is a sense of also it's an ensemble story yeah. as well because we get we get a, we get an arc for I think we get an arc for everybody. I think almost safe to say we get everybody's everyone begins middle and ends on who they are alongside our exploration in more detail, I suppose, of Stan. Um, yeah, and that's, you were asking the contribution of Joël Bourjoli, mm -hmm. my co-writer, that's yeah. the contribution of Joël making sure we nail that, you know? Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, we, we do. It started out as my story, which was very kind of self-centered and, and, you know, narcissistic and cathartic, like like mm. uh, a few of us do. Um, and... Um, when I discovered the actual actors were going to play the characters and I discovered their lives and I reshaped the screenplay based on their lives because a, a few of them were not professionally trained actors. Yeah. Some of them were performers, uh, singers, public speakers, uh, models, but not professionally trained actors. But then their lives were more interesting than the characters I had written. It was more, their stories were more teeming with life than what was on the page. And so our process was to recraft a screenplay based on their stories. And, and then they all came to life and to me became very, very interesting. And to the audience as well, you know, and um, yeah. So, I mean, you, you, you cast people who were physically, who had physical issues themselves. It wasn't, you, you didn't just have actors pretending to be. No, no, no. Two reasons for this. I'll give mm. you the politically incorrect one and the politically correct one. Please. The politically incorrect one is that it's damn too expensive to put makeup on everybody for four hours every day. <laughs> and uh, Fly me. The, the second reason is that it, morally it would have been the equivalent of doing blackface, you know? Yeah.
Whoa, sorry about that. I think the call ended. Yeah, it did. No, it did. It did. Do you want to go just to just to camera, uh, just to audio, because I think that saves yeah, a bit sure. of bandwidth. I'm done. I'm done. Right. Sure. So you can start again with you want, if you if you want to to start the to yeah. cut it in easier. If you start yeah. if you start your answer with there's a, a non political correct and a political correct. If you start with that that start, I can cut it all in. For sure. So so basically. Uh, there were two reasons for using real people with facial differences. Uh, one is politically incorrect answer, and the other is politically correct. The politically incorrect answer that I give at festivals to freak people out is that it's bloody too expensive to put makeup on everybody for four hours every day. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the budget. And the, 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 the politically correct answer was that it was amoral for me to take, you know, non-disfigured people and cast them as disfigured people it would have been like doing blackface in yeah. this day and age yeah so you know this is not the 80s and um like with mask the movie mask with share or, or even wonder that movie that came out a couple of years ago that everybody loved they took a normal looking kid and just put like very symmetrical makeup on it and made this like you know kumbaya happy-go-lucky story and um there's there's, a, know, there's, a, there's a gary oldman one where he plays the dwarf Oh God! Well, anyway, I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, actors are well-known actors are there for a reason. They have charisma, and, mm. and that's like hard to imitate, impossible to imitate. But no, the, the the thing with this story was that I needed the real thing because it's it was not only about the film. Making this film was a way for me to come to terms with my disgust or repulsion or shyness or superficiality vis-à-vis -vis people that looked or different yeah so it was also it gave me the chance to actually sit with people look at their faces and say well what can we talk about like what, what can i joke about this like what's what's taboo you know and actually to face my own fears face what i couldn't face when i was a teenager and my mom was sick so i think there was that that was going on in the film and i'm i'm talking about this after the fact because while i was doing it at the beginning i wasn't really aware that all those things were playing in my head so uh I needed to find people that were facially different, but also that were willing to go on camera, mm. bear themselves naked, you know, in terms of their lives and sometimes physically, yeah. and also um, have charisma because not everybody has charisma, you know, in the general population. So it was tough to find. We had to find them like in all across the, the North American continent. And I almost I, I almost uh, got some people from Britain, but I, I, I didn't have the budget. I didn't have the last bit of funding I needed to fly people over from London to participate. Um, so so it, was, it was the greatest thing that happened to me in the movie was casting these people because it, they changed my life. They influenced the crew, just the way we look at different people. Like it, it, really, it really shaped the film, but also like how who we were as human beings while we were doing the film. Cause we had to deal with like weird stuff, like um, somebody having a hearing aid because she had 60 surgeries or my actor drooling and having, you know, like fake teeth and the eyes not being on the same level. And so it's hard to do the focus on the eyes. So we have to come to terms with actually talking about this stuff, you yeah. know, and, and, and goofing around with it on set sometimes, because what do you do on set with your actors is you joke around and you, you have fun. So, um, what was going on outside of the camera was often very, very interesting as well. So you kind of, in a way, you 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 learn to be as as blind to it as as what the characters want in the film, as it were. You. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a therapy for me to do this film uh, as a bit of a, as an homage to my mom, uh, what what I lived through with her, and 
as uh, as as the contact with with these people evolved and deepened into friendship uh it was also therapeutic for me them the audience i mean not the audience i mean the crew i mean mm. and um it was a way for me to become less of a dick really less superficial i suppose <laughs> Well, look, you, you met, you I'm met. not saying it's stuck. Sometimes it, the thing is, 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 it's not. I mean, you know, we see all these films, these politically correct films uh, about people that are open and tolerant to other people that are different. And if people are like that, good for them. But I find that it's not always easy. You think you're open minded and then you realize that you're not as open minded as you thought or you think you've changed. And then another situation comes up and you haven't changed. So it's kind of like an ongoing process to go towards another human being that looks, smells, feels, acts different. And, and um... yeah, and yeah, and, and, and yeah, because because I think one of the and I think I wrote this in the, in the review that I, I did for the film, but it's at no point is is happy face trying to say it solved the world's problems as far as this goes. It, oh, no, it, hell no. And I'm certainly not going to be the one to be preachy and casting yeah, yeah, stone yeah. to be like Yo, everybody, you got to be woke and you've got to be like this. You know, I mean, uh, maybe, uh, you know, I grew up in an era that was, that was, you know, where difference, you know, even if Canada is an open country, you know, it wasn't, uh, wasn't put forth, you know, in the media everywhere. And so, um, uh, I don't know. I think it's not, I mean, for me, it didn't come naturally. And so I kind of like have to work at it a little bit. No, no, no. I mean, I've, this is going to sound like a crass example, but I remember um, I used to work on markets, and I work in and I live in East London. So in East London, you've got quite a high Muslim population, okay. and uh, there was there was the first time I ever served some somebody with a, bur a full burqa on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the first time I'd ever really spoke to somebody with a burqa. Never mind served them as a customer, and it mm -hmm. and it. Partway through, it was like partway through, it was blowing my own mind that this was the first time, given how many people I must have walked past, right, right, <laughs> you know, living sure. in the area. But that was the first time. So when you, when you reduce something down to the granular level of you and them, then you confront your prejudices or not, as the case may be. Yeah, and you know what? I believe that, um, I, I, I'm a firm believer that, we, we, we need to be able, when we talk to other people, uh, to, to be able to, 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 to laugh about things, to ask the questions and not to censor ourselves. I think if we're, we're in a climate that's, you know, sometimes the political correctness is, I mean, it's a great, it's a great cause. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't want to be misquoted on this. I mean, mm. I mean, the goal is great, but sometimes if we shame people into saying the right thing and, and appearing to act a certain way, but they think different, they're still going to harbor whatever fears and insecurities and prejudices they have. And you see, I, I was lucky enough in the 90s before I, moved, I, was, I was fully in film, I worked in the Persian Gulf. I worked in Dubai for two years after my mom died. Mm. And so I worked in a fully Muslim country where people in burqa and full headdress were like 90% of the population or 70% of the population. And I lived in, in the Islamic Emirates, Sharjah. And I remember, you know, the mosque was there five times a day. You know, the minaret was blaring. You know, uh, co-workers, Muslim co-workers were trying to convert me. And I made friends with all kinds of different Arabic uh, nationalities, you know, whether they were Persian, Arabic, uh, you know, different branches of the Muslim faith. And, you know, we got to joke about things and stuff like that. So when I came back to North America in 1998... For some reason, for me, Islam, it was not like something, you know, even when 9-11 happened and everybody started to be fearing Islam in North America, it wasn't really like 
I don't know. I, I had lived in Islam, and so I had a, had a blast there. I had had fun there, you know, and yeah, yeah. I had had great years. And so um, the interaction, the, the laughing with somebody, goofing around, asking questions about their personal lives, like, how do you do this? How do you cook this? What do you do for this? What do you do for that? That's usually the, the trick, you know, by rubbing with against somebody. Then then you realize, oh, shit, you know, basically we're all pretty much uh, we've got we're, 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 we're just like equal assholes, really, or equally great. <laughs> and I think that's what I did with the film. I was going to say you've just summed up your film really well in a sense. It's like you you give us this you give us this really highly charged setup, which is yeah. here's here's a perfectly normal in inverted commas looking guy who infiltrates a group of people who are all vulnerable, and you make yeah. us go, they're all victims. He's poor a bad, them. He's yeah. poor them. He's a bad man. And then you take us on this journey of, you know, where we're going to laugh and we're going to cry and we're going to get angry and we're going to get and we're going to feel sad. But but also what you reveal is that 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 brilliant thing about um, the message at the start of the film, which is clear, which is and I don't mean you're saying it. I mean, as in watching the film, it's clear that if only those people in the group could could let the person inside be seen rather than what they are on the outside. They would be mm-hmm. confident wherever they go. That that's their big stumbling block is that they don't look like how they feel on the inside. So society deems and they're and it's almost in a way and it's it, it's sort of double. It's like double tragic and, and this is look this is complete privilege talking because I don't have to worry about it. Um, you know the worst I might worry about is if I had a cold sore on the side of my mouth and it'd be like oh that's a horrible thing but it'd be gone in a week. Um, and mm-hmm. and and then for you to go on a journey with these characters and find. That maybe the person underneath isn't so innocent is the wrong is is probably the best way without spoiling anything, and that they are just right. as complicated as complex as every fucking body else, and they they dislike people they they upset people they cause grief amongst people they know, and it's got absolutely nothing to do with their disfigurement. And I thought that was a really big journey for me as me and everybody else who gets to watch it to go on, is that these oh boo-hoo, tis me kind of thing you get when you start. Then at the end, because we've watched them, we've learned that they can laugh, they can cry, they've got ambitions and stuff, you go, okay, they're just, <laughs> therefore, they are like everybody else. There's no, contra- that's not a contradiction. But then to reveal other things to say, yeah, there's flaws as well. There's flaws everybody else. So disfigurement or not disfigurement, we still make bad choices. As well as good yeah, choices. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's tough because, of course, they've had to go through tough times being bullied and, and, mm. and you know, and, and all that stuff. And um, but yeah, the idea that when you find out about people, they're they're as layered as as you and I are, mm. uh, was something that was there beginning in the beginning in the script, but that we discovered as we were we were we were rehearsing. And as I was discovering about my actors and their lives and trying to come to terms with their different characters and their different openness towards the film. And um, it was really fun to be to, to, to do that, to be like, OK, well, they're not victims or they're not angels. You know, they could be they're great and they could mm. be assholes, too. And, and I think that that part I'm proud of with the film, you know, mm. that uh, each each one of them, you have something you learn. And you're like, oh, shit, you know, and um it's uh, yeah, yeah. Basically, as, as a as a director, then as a director doing doing your second feature film, what was what was um, what were the challenges for you taking a group of people who weren't necessarily all sort of 
who woke up the day when you phoned them to be an actor, but obviously they had a role, they, they could play a role in your film. How did you develop that kind of confidence in you and them um, to, to, uh, to, to, to deliver on yeah. what was needed? I mean, it, it required a lot of trust. First of all, I opened up, you know, from the first time we all met about my story, the story of my mm. mom and my own fears and, and reluctances vis-a-vis uh, appearance and body image and the fact that I was not like a kind of super open-minded and that I had like questions and I was a little bit ashamed that I had a, an obese cousin, first cousin when I was um, growing up. Her name was Vanessa, kind of like the therapist. Mm. Uh, she used to come from France. She was my first cousin and I loved her. I, I still love her as a sister. And, uh, you know, I was 16 and my mom was telling me, oh, take your cousin out to go out with your friends, you know, to the nightclub. And I didn't want to take her out because she was obese. You know, I felt ashamed. And uh, so I used to be making excuses uh, that I was going to play Dungeons and Dragons, but then I'd go out. And so I kind of told all all my little dark sides to them initially. And then they felt confident telling me theirs, you know. Mm. And uh, we, we, we went through some kind of weird, rigorous training where we uh, I asked them to write all the insults, all the bad stuff, all the slurs they've received and heard in their lives on a piece of paper and then read it out to other people, you know, like blast it out to other people as if, you know, to, to they were giving out the insults. So we, we did that process, myself and the, the non-disfigured actors and, and my actors. And then by the end of a few days, we we're all like, there was no, there were no more taboos, you know, there were no more like we could insult each other about anything, talk about anything. And then then it was a question of like, okay, well, rehearsing the scenes and, and making them work. And because some of them were not fully trained in terms of hitting their marks and line, remembering lines, doing a scene was more like workshopping an improv scene. You, you know, we, it was scripted, but yet we kind of do it and we do it over and over and over. And then when we start getting something good on the set, we start filming it. So it took a lot of time on the set. Mm. Uh, and it, it pressured me. I, I was pressured for two reasons. One, it was a story about my mom. I didn't want to get it wrong. I didn't want to screw it up and do a disservice to her memory. Yeah. And so that was kind of like paralyzed me and, and the efforts to get the emotional tone, the right tone with the actors and the performances uh, made it, you know, plus co-producing it made it so that I kind of really neglected the actual direction of the film, the actual, like making a shot list, doing storyboards. So I kind of went into this without any shot list and without any storyboards to the dismay of my crew, <laughs> because I was just so preoccupied, stressed, uh, you know, like obsessed by getting the right tone, the right performance, the right emotional continuity with each scene. So, uh, yeah, I think, I don't know if that answers the question, but so no, it, it was, does. was it tough, does. You know? No, it does. No, no, I can, yeah, that's, that's fully, the, the idea that almost like <laughs> being ready to make the film, never mind direct the film, was, was more important in the first instance uh, than, than just simply, I'm a director, I'm in charge, everybody do what I want, uh, which would have got you nothing, would it, I suppose? Uh, no, I mean, it still ends up being that, right? Because it's on your shoulders as a director, but um, I, I, it's not my style, you know? I mean, if there's a lesson to learn from this for me is like for the next film, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to storyboard the hell out of it <laughs> because, because I don't want to go through and, you know, what I, what I went through or put my crew through that. But I think for this one, I, um, I guess it was the way to do it, you know? And I think, I think it was just the anxiety of like the shoot, you know, and doing it. And I think my first feature, The Wild Hunt, 
was so taxing emotionally, financially, uh, uh, you know, viscerally that I was burnt out after it. Mm. And so coming on to the second one, I, I think I had like some post-traumatic stress syndrome that three weeks before the shoot, when we were in prep, I started like stressing out and I would just procrastinate. Mm. And I was like, what the hell's wrong with me? You know, I, I think it was just the anxiety of like screwing it up or, or, or knowing what I was going into. So, um, I mean, I, I just focused on the actors. Yeah. Now, now, obviously, a big part, a big part of watching this film is 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 sort of the the sort of vulnerability and the sort of almost like trigger trigger emotions of the people who who are part of the group who want who just want to who want to go out and want to just be able to order a drink and it not be a big issue. Not because it's not because it's a big issue for them. What it is is a big issue for everybody else. And I think the way that um, the way the film sort of demonstrates that is has certainly had a, had an impact on me personally, because while I wouldn't exactly say I was I was someone that stared a lot or anything like that, but you know I'm I'm a nosy bugger, and mm-hmm. you know I'll look at something you know novelty and difference will catch me eye, and I don't mean that nosy, really. the way you said nosy bugger sounded Scottish for some reason, <laughs> <laughs> but but you know it's the and and what I was what I was made fully aware of in your mo- in your movie is that that's 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 like the kryptonite for the for, for that ele- even the perception that people are staring. Never mind if you are. So the more the more you could make it that you're not paying attention, as it were, beyond simply hello, how are you? You know, wave, nod, hello, that kind of you know normal gestures. I thought that was an ama- I thought that was an amazing part part of it, and. Um, I'm struggling to think what my point was here at that at that at that juncture. Well, let me, I, I can I can oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah. No, the, the point I was trying to make was that because within that you also set us up to fall, as in the audience, because you give us you give us Stan, who obviously has no disfigurement, but what mm-hmm. we know about his mum, and you have Vanessa, who is um, obese, mm-hmm. and that's I mean. The way that the way that's challenged within the group it also blew my mind because you begin to go because because they only said what me the audience was thinking, and um, and then you've got the people there who aren't suffering from a condition but are the victim of an accident and therefore their life has changed because they've as in Jocko's instance he's been burned beyond right. beyond the normal kind in a very visual way and he's right. and he's in a wheelchair uh, while he while he convalesces so. And, and he has a big outburst, which is to basically say, I'm not like you. Right. Like as if somehow his condition after the accident means he hovers between people who have a condition they're born with and people who have nothing wrong with them as far as their face goes. And like he's suddenly going to be ascending into the normal. I think he calls them freaks, doesn't he? In, in, I'm yeah, not a freak yeah, yeah, like yeah. you. I mean, this is like the politics of it. Is at the, at the kind of as a microcosm of what's going as, at the micro level, is as fascinating as the macro side of it, which is they you know just walking out into the world is hard. But actually, within the group, they're not all agreed on it because they're all individuals. No, exactly. I mean, it's um, I mean, it's it's really weird. I mean, it's um, at, at first I wanted when I was crafting the film to, to have scenes, you know, where they walk outside and, and you have close-ups of people staring and eyes gazing and eyes averted, you know, kind of like if you have social anxiety and you mm. walk out and you're going to freaking out and looking at everybody else and everybody's going to turn away. And But then I was like, budget-wise, time-wise, um, you know, the number of pages we have to cover in a day, that was becoming more and more difficult. And after a while, I was like, oh, wait a minute, as an audience, 
we all like stare, not stare, don't know how to behave. You know, if mm. somebody walks in and their face is all disfigured, we won't even know how to react. So I'm like, if I show these people, I don't even have to show the scenes where they go out. And I mean, I do a little bit, but we're, we're going to make the leap, you know, as an audience, we're going to be like thinking all those things, like what you just said. So, um, yeah, we, we imagine your production values. <laughs> Yes, it's, uh, so exactly. So I was like, okay, that was a good way to escape that. Uh, and um, and as for the microcosm of it, yeah, it was just. Um, I guess that came out in the in the workshopping of the scenes, you know, in the rehearsing of the scenes, in the workshopping on the day. Uh, because it's true that I found that if somebody's born with a, a facial difference, it's not the same thing that if they they acquire it in life, their self definition is different. You know, like um, it's like there's a different there's not the same kind of grieving process you know and, yeah. and somebody that's born into a loving caring family you know uh even if they have a facial difference there's a good chance their self-esteem will be okay whereas somebody who gets something an accident later in life they'll have to contend with that like loss of self loss of self-image like a different self-image there's a grieving process there mm -hmm. so i think i wanted we wanted to address that a little bit and um it came naturally. It came naturally, you know. Uh, I don't know if I answered the question. If there was a question, but yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah, you, it's it's the it's it's just the idea that there, there exists a kind of hierarchy, like in everywhere else. You know, there are there are alpha characters, there are beta characters. They're not all they're not all just sort of amoebas just waiting to be told when to say a word. You know, it's like you got the sense you got a sense of real real people in the group and when and when and also the fact the group represents security because the outside world is where for these people as you show us all their fears are realized all their worries are waiting for them to happen whereas for the time we're in this group they're not threatened by anything because between them they all understand each other's situation even though they're all very different in how they look and they and on what they want out of life and so on and so forth, um, you know. So you, yeah. think, you know, someone that wants to see their grandkids, someone that wants to be a model, someone that wants to just get their mother to let her work on the shop floor. These are not the same problems, but they're caused by the same issue, which is the way that someone treats you for the way you look. Or so right, and and it also comes with two, these issues come to people who are not disfigured at the same mm. time, right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so we could relate to them, but it's just made worse. But, I mean, it's funny because... It's true that, to get back to your early point, earlier point, because um, some of them were not, you know, uh, like I said, professionally trained actors, hmm. you know, where you actually go through a scene and, you know, you workshop it, you workshop it. Like, I, I couldn't, if it, it couldn't be too preachy and it couldn't be too on the nose and, and didactic in the dialogue and the points I wanted to make. Hmm. You know, and um, I mean, there's this show I've been seeing on Netflix recently. It came out a few years ago called Dear White People. Yeah, it's yeah. about like um, gender, uh, you know, race politics on an American campus, kind of a comedy. It's it's actually very well made. It's very tight and it's 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 like very intellectual and and, um, and wordy. And it's kind of cool. I enjoy watching it, but I couldn't do this with this film. One, because it, it's not my style. Hmm. And the two... Yeah, my approach is more is more visceral, and with my actors, the idea was more to try to get the emotion out first, mm. you know, and then craft the rest of the scene, craft the message around it, and um, 
which was which to me was more organic and felt truer you know mm. if not it would have it would have felt a bit i've tried to do scenes like that but they felt like stale or forced and so um and so when the Jocko character has his shit fit you know and he yeah. starts flipping out and we realize he's not so cool after all and he starts yelling at them that he's not a freak he doesn't like them well you know i figured okay he's he's a cop he's probably obtuse in certain ways he's got his little you know stereotypes and so they're coming out you know so uh it just felt natural to put it there no no it's, it's, it's just it's just that idea of i think that you know when when there's there's a thing called the strength development values i think it's called it's like a human resources technique you may have come across it in your uh, in your financial corporate life or something similar and what they do is that what they do is they profile individuals in a workplace based on blue blue and red right blue being this is how you behave when everything goes well so this so most of us are usually good people to be with when everything's going well so the measure they want to understand is how the hell do you respect how the hell do you react when pressure's on so right. Do you go like Jocko and start flailing arms and hitting out? Or do you, you know, double down and make sure the job gets done? You know, it's that kind of, that kind of, you know, obviously there's lots of, there's lots of grey between those two extremes. Of, yeah, yeah. And it's just, and I think that's what it was great to see is that, they, you know, Jocko wasn't just a man struggling with his, with his thing. He was, he was, he was angry and his outburst was received, was received by them in the, in the kind of, in the context it was. They didn't go, oh, he's calling his freaks, therefore we'll not be his friend anymore. They were almost going. We've had a whole lifetime to get used to this. He's had two minutes. <laughs> He's had two minutes. We had this. We had this hissy fit when we were five, kind of thing. You know, where where suddenly you you know maybe maybe ten years old or something, where you might you might begin to understand that people aren't taking you into their group. You know, like a bit like what you were describing your, your the way you 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 behaved when you were asked to take responsibility for your, for your cousin. Suddenly, friends becoming self-conscious of who they are will see who you are and therefore suddenly you've been hurt and you may well have acted in a similar way as the way Jocko was suddenly behaving but I'm rambling now so I'm going to stop that and it's fine, it's fine. and move on to um, what was your experiences like because a lot much of the film takes place in the kind of confines of uh, of, of, of the where the group therapy takes place um, Stan's apartment and the individual characters' apartments, but also, but but you do take everybody out, sort of on manoeuvres, for want of a better expression, uh, yeah, yeah. on the practical exercises. So, what was your experience like shooting? Because you, if you if you're under pressure to get so much in the can, you know, so many pages per day, then those sequences must have been the more challenging because you you've not got as much control of the variables. Plus, you're working with not trained actors. So, for you, what was what was the challenge there going out into the city with your production? I mean, it was it was a typical challenges of a, of a low budget production going out into the city at night sometimes, mm -hmm. um, which which is fine. Um, it's more in these cases, like the big scenes, like the bar, where um, you have a lot of extras, and, and then I got to get all my shots in, and I'm not as prepared as I would like to. That was kind of tough, you know, because the day's gonna rise at the end of the night and mm. so uh that, that was intense and it was also it was also cool to see like you know at the bar i have all those cute young kids you know that are there and i had my my crew of disfigured actors there and uh i could see the stairs you know of course they're looking at each other <laughs> you know and mm. uh, and um that was kind of interesting and uh but not not different than than any other film i would say it okay. was um it was uh, you know i tried to shoot in the neighborhoods where i grew up in 
Yeah. You know, I, I shot in the hospital where my mom passed away. I shot on the same street that I grew up in, almost nearly the same apartment building. Uh, just because it was a trip for memory, down memory lane for me. So that was kind of interesting. And uh, shoot, shoot in the, the hood that I grew up in. And um, I mean, but it wasn't worse or better than any night shoot uh, that you do, right? Except that you, people get tired mm. and... Um, some of my some of the actors are not are not young, you know, and naturally, uh, you know, you shoot a whole night, you do get tired. But they were they were managing themselves quite well, so it was okay. Okay. I mean, because I say they're not trained, but I mean, David Roche, the guy who plays Otis, has been doing public speaking for thirty five years, so he's okay. kind of like, you know, he's he's able to, to to turn it on, you know, and mm. and the, the guy who plays Jocko, Er Ruse, is a hip hop singer, so he's a performer, and he does act in some American series and movies. And so he's got he's got some backgrounds, and got some it. of the others have done a bit of short films and some nothing. So, but I mean, it's not the same as an actor who's done the conservatory and they're able to memorize lines and got lines it. of dialogue and and play it in two diff three different ways, you know. So, uh, but no, the, the the actual outdoor shooting was um, typical vicissitudes of outdoor shooting. You know, you've noise at one point, you've got the cops at one point, you've got like a restaurant owner wanting to throw you out, like you know, normal stuff for indie films. Good, good, good. Well, not good, but yeah, it's all yeah. reasonable. So, um, we've talked a, we've talked a lot about the development of the story. There's, the, there's like your, there's your, your, there's your sort of throw everything on the page. There's, there's Joel sort of cajoling with you to bring a sort of more fuller story with the Stan character and all the other characters. Then there's the casting, which then brings with it new information and new details and subplots to, to sort of fit in. And when you've right. shot this movie, what what was what was some of your favourite discoveries in the edit about what you had that you couldn't have expected going into it that made obviously what become the finished happy face? Um, I mean, in the edit we discovered with my editor, my editor at one point turns to me, Hubert Ayo. I had two editors, Amélie and Hubert, and Hubert turns to me and he goes, "You know what? It looks like a cartoon." Like he goes, the color, the color palette, the look, and these characters are so like outrageous the way they look and the way they act. Mm. He goes, it looks like a bunch of like a like a comic book, you know, like a yeah. bunch of like superheroes without superpowers. They're all a bunch of losers, and they're all like they're all wrong. Whatever they do is wrong in so many places, but they're endearing. Yeah, and uh, I kind of dug that. I was like, yeah, I guess it's, I guess you're right. Uh, Claudine Sauvé did my camera, my uh, photography, and uh, she, she she came up with a really cool color palette that was reminiscent of the 90s, you know, late 80s, early 90s. Mm. And um, I think the editing moments that I really like are um, when they're at the bar. I mean, there's the montage when they get dressed and there's a super cool music and they're going out, you know, the Violent Femme song. That's kind of a classic Hollywood uh, mm. moment. But, but then at the transition when they're at the bar and they go, who wants to go for some roadies pizza? And I do this kind of weird ass commercial where they start singing a song and I, I flip and, and I see a, a guy is uh, a Kurdish guy. who's was like, roadies pizza. He's the actual son of the owner of the pizza place. And I was like, Hey man, I'm going to put you in the movie. You want to? And he's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so for me, it was, it was all these little moments uh, that were like, or, and just after that at the pizzeria, when the kid goes, fuck face wins, you know, this was like done on the set. For me, it was the moments that were thought of on the set, the little gems of magic that were like, wow, you know, uh, 
um, that were cool. Oh, I'm kind of happily surprised with the whole Dungeons and Dragons thing and the ring and the mother with the Wagner music, how that kind of ties in. I, I, it kind of works. I'm like, okay, I've checked with audiences and female audiences and they're like, yeah, it works. So I was like, I was like happily surprised with that. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, like, I guess that's the one thing I haven't, one thing I haven't mentioned is that you, I mean, you, you, it, it's, it's a lovely, I mean, obviously now, now, now you mentioned in the start that it's something that comes directly from you. Um, but for the Stan yeah. character as we see it, the way that, um, the putting yourself into the role of a character, which is obviously the, the make believe, the suspension of, you know, suspension of belief to be able to play a good game of Dungeons and Dragons is, becomes like the thing for the film doesn't it it's like and, and was that was that something you'd identified at the start or was that something like that you you could you could see working because it is it is playing isn't it you know to play to play Dungeons and Dragons and then to overlay it onto to mean something so serious metaphorically speaking which is here's your alter ego basically go live your yeah. life go live your life it's kind of that's very kind of that could easily have been you know, very kind of Coca-Cola advert type of um, solution. It could have been super, yeah, it could have been super on the nose and super cheesy and like, like particularly at the end when he's with his mom at the end and he, he digs deep. I mean, you know, taking flight into imaginary worlds, finding refuge in my imagination was always my, my go-to means of coping right. and also trying to draw strength from that world or, or, you know, was also a way that I've, done things in my life and, and my stories. So it's always that play between taking refuge, escaping into the imaginary and also using the imaginary to gain strength in the real world. Or, you know, you're, you're hiding in your imaginary world and the real world comes crashing down. And what do you do? That was the top, that was a bit of the theme of my first film, the wild hunt right. with the, the medieval reenactors. So in this case, so it, it was planned and, um, but I knew that, it's funny, whenever I tried to film it, like, more like Hollywood or mainstream, it didn't work. It wouldn't work. So <laughs> it, it was kind of like, or when I explained it too much, it wouldn't work. So it was like, it was tough. It was a tough one. Editing-wise, that was a super tough one. We we played with that, like, till the end, many, many, many months right. uh, to get that delicate balance. And I think it works, you know, like, kind of like barely, but it works in the sense that it's a fragile equilibrium of... People getting it, feeling it, but not being like overstated. And like you said, Coca-Cola ad. No, no, no. Because yeah. like by the time it's really introduced to the people that we've we've grown within the film, it, it seems to make sense. I think if it had been, I think if you'd have put that, if that scene would have been Stan's first move, it would have been, it would have been a bit, it would have been a bit ludicrous. But because right. it's, it's like almost like we're seeing Stan come to a conclusion. And he's gone, do you know what? This is just like the games are play. If I just show right. them, they can begin. Like I, and, and like, in fact, what you just, without that ever being on the page or on, or on, or what he says, the, the, the subtext being, I can escape in my imagination. So why can't they? There's no, there's no difference of, there's no difference in imagination. We've all got one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's the power of myth, right? It's yeah. The, it's what people have been, why people have been doing rituals for like years, thousands of years, tens of thousands of years and inventing gods and all kinds of legends and like heroes and demigods. It's why uh, these superhero movies have such success these days, right? So, uh, 
uh, that it, it appeals to the kid in us. And um, so I think on that visceral level, it works. And that was um, that was the only level that I could play it at. You know, he just mm. does it. We don't try to over explain it or he, he stand. He's in the, he, I, I, it needed to be in a 19 year old kind of way, you know, not in a, an adult writing something. Yeah, 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 no, totally. Uh, it's kind of like he brings his fucking figurines to the thing. It's like, look, you're all monsters, and your your defect is your strength. And it's so wrong to say this. It's so politically mm. incorrect to say this, but that's the only way the 19-year-old could, could do it, you know, in, in that era, in that context of the film. Got you. Uh, and I think that was the, the only way to play it for me, you know. Is um, there is that now? Now, obviously, we I watched it at Fright Fest, and it's and it's played at other festivals. Is there is there, have you is there plans in the pipeline for Happy Happy Face to get a UK or a North American release at the moment? Have you got any dates you can announce? No, unfortunately, no. Uh, it's been um, we've we've talked we're talking to sales agents to eventually lead to distribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been tough because a lot of the sales companies or distributors are telling us, oh, it's great, it's touching, but we don't know how to sell this disfigurement, cancer, you know, and stuff like that. So it's been tough to get that the market interest in that sense. And yet whenever audiences see it and the reviews come in, it's it's all very positive. So we're pushing for this. It's playing at Fantastic Fest at the end of September Fantastic. Uh, in the U.S. It's playing at a bunch of genre film festivals, which was, I found at the beginning, really surprising uh, because it's a drama, at, 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 you know, Happy Face is a drama, but whatever it seems that whenever I make a movie, even though I make a drama, for some reason I find an audience with the genre crowd because maybe that's my crowd. That's uh, I grew up on comic books and genre films, so I suppose uh, there's some elements. And um, an interesting note is that when I contacted organizations that, you know, that, that are helping people with facial differences. And I'm like, hey, guys, it's playing at Fright Fest UK, a horror festival. They were like, great, but wait a minute. Is this, you know, like, do we want to advertise this? What are our, our sponsors going to say? What are our, our, our patients or clients going to say? Like, they were, I think they were a bit afraid that it might be exploited there. And uh, I was like, well, no, the, the, the genre crowd is a crowd that always felt different, you know, mm. outside of the mainstream. And I think they could identify with the heroes and the characters of the film. So right now, the track record of the film has been puzzling me. You know, it's been doing quite well at genre film festivals. I'm like, woohoo, you know, that's super cool. And so now we're we're looking at a distributor or sales agent that specializes in genre films to hopefully get it to um, theaters or VOD in your neck of the woods in the UK. Brilliant. Well, look, keep us posted. And um, obviously this will go live soon, but, but for when you do get that release date, let us know and we'll, uh, we'll recycle the podcast with new show, new show, uh, new release details in the show notes. But it just gives me to say, thank you very much for giving me your time on the podcast. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks for the time. It was great. All right, man. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. 